Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. What kind of a peace do we seek? Not merely peace for Americans, peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died some 38 minutes ago. Here is a suspect, 24-year-old Lee H. Oswald. I'm just a passing president. Who actually fired the shots that killed Kennedy? Was there a conspiracy? In the years since the Warren Report, there is now so much more that we know. Conspiracy theories are now conspiracy facts. The Warren Commission successfully deceived the public. Alan Dulles' appointment to the Warren Commission is one of the great frauds of American history. Documents are withheld by the FBI, the CIA. Intelligence agencies did all the wrong things if they were looking for conspiracy. We will go back and piece together new facts and evidence that shed more light on what really happened here that day. Commission believe that the same bullet that hit Kennedy hit Conley. Well, I don't believe it. It is indeed a magic bullet. Oswald was a figure of interest for four years before the assassination. They were reading his mother's mail. His first year in office, Kennedy made many enemies. He vows he's going to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. Have you ever committed any act of violence? He was intimately involved in the cover-up. Once you kill a president on the streets of American City, that sends a signal. The rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. If America really wants a democratic society, and we should get to the bottom of this traumatic crime that continues to reverberate throughout American history. This nation will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. All right. And thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. That was the uh, trailer for the new documentary film, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, directed by Oliver Stone, 30 years after Stone stirred the pot with the Oscar-nominated drama JFK, starring Kevin Costner as New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. Stone is back at it again and doubling down. And this is, again, JFK Revisited, written by James Eugenio. And uh, Jim is here for the full two hours. The documentary is informed by revelations uncovered from the nearly 2 million pages of documents that were declassified by the Assassination Records Review Board. And the public remains largely unaware of many of the conspiracy facts buried in these 2 million pages. And Jim D. Genio uh, is here to share some of those conspiracy facts with us tonight. He has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University, Northridge. He's also a specialist in the history and theory of cinema, and he's written numerous film reviews. He's one of the foremost researchers into the major assassinations of the 1960s. His first book, Destiny Betrayed, was an in-depth look at the Garrison investigation, 
1993, he co-founded both Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the following year, the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Along with Lisa Pease, he co-edited the uh, journal Probe magazine from 1993 to 2000 and later assisted in a compilation of the Probe articles, which was published as The Assassinations. In response to Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History and associated film Parkland, Eugenio published Reclaiming Parkland, a critique of Bugliosi's uh, methodology, evidence, and findings in the Kennedy assassination. Jim was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. And again, most recently, Jim worked alongside and wrote for Oliver Stone's new documentary, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Jim, welcome back. How are you? How are you doing, Richard? Thanks for having me back. Let me ask you, first of all, what it was like working with Oliver Stone up close, side by side, working on this project. He seems like a very intense individual, a perfectionist. What was it like working with him? Well, there were three phases to putting this thing together with Oliver. There was first the screenplay, working on the screenplay. The screenplay went through... Although it says it's it's based on my book, it's not really based on my book. It was really an original screenplay. And that went through six drafts. And it took about, I'd say, five or six months to go ahead and finish that screenplay. That was step one. Then step two was the actual production of the film, which Oliver wanted me on the set to make sure nobody made any mistakes. So we went through about five or six cities in about two weeks in order to shoot the film. All the, see, the, the backbone of the film, and you've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. In this version, a two-hour version, there's 23 interview subjects. No film on this case has ever had the quantity and the quality of interviewees that this film had. And so we had to go, it was cheaper actually, to go back and interview them than it was to fly them all out to LA. And so in the four hour version, which will come out in February, there's actually like 29 interview subjects. And so that was the second part, the actual production of the film. And then of course, was editing the film. And we ended up with three editors and three assistant editors. It took over a year and a half, more like two years, to edit this thing because we had so much film. When you interview that many people, you end up with about 48 hours of film, which I had to read every single transcript, okay, to help our editors put it together. But it's such a well-made picture. You know, we had Bob Richardson, a three-time Oscar winner, do the photography, which turned out to be a great stroke of brilliance on Oliver's part. I think this is the most beautifully photographed documentary I've ever seen. Then we had a, a guy named Kurt Matilia who came in to do the last two-hour version, and he edited it together, and I think it has a beautiful flow to it for such a complicated subject. Now, as far as working with Oliver, 
I don't know how this guy ever got this reputation because Oliver of being simply, difficult. Reputation he, of being difficult, he, you mean? Well, to me, it, it really wasn't like that. He just, he's a very bright guy, so he asked a lot of questions. So when we were doing the drafting of the screenplays, he would ask me questions, and he would double-check on things. And he would say, can you get a better source for that? So I had to find a better source for something I wrote. And that process went on for months on end. Me and Rob Wilson, the producer, you know, would drive out to Oliver's home, and we would sit there for three or four hours and go over the current draft of the script. And so if you want to say he's exacting, if you want to say that he's very meticulous, yes, but, you know, I, I, I don't find that being difficult. But okay? so are you, Jim. I just you, find so that, you, you know, You're I meticulous. kind of appreciate that. I kind of like somebody yeah. who pushes me. And so about 90% of the time, I thought it was a pleasant experience. See, the, the, the only difference I have with Oliver... He likes to edit film. He can sit in a chair for six hours and edit film. Personally, I don't like that. I don't like the editing part of, of, of making movies. And, it, and I've said this to him before. I said, if I ever get to direct a movie, I'm going to come in like maybe twice a week and look at what the guy has, make some suggestions, and then leave. But Oliver is not like that. He's, in, in essence, he's really the supervising editor on his right. films. Well, a lot of directors feel that's where the, you know, the movie, you know, sort of really comes together in editing for them. But let, let me ask yes. you, did, did Oliver Stone ever say to you after getting to know you and, and reading your, your work and, and working alongside you, did he ever say to you, Jim, I wish I knew you back in 91 when I made the movie JFK, it would have been totally different. Yes, he did say, <laughs> he actually did say that. Okay. And I think it's because of my book, uh, The JFK Assassination. See, Reclaiming Parkland was retitled to JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. Okay. He has that book in his office. Okay. And he gives it to people who come in. All right. His former secretary, Janet Lee, um, when I first met her, she said, Jim, you should have seen Oliver with your book. Okay. He went through it every page, underlined things, dog-eared the pages, okay? And now he gives it to everybody who comes into the office, all right? Okay, and so he, he really liked that book. And he, and he said, you know, more than one occasion, you know, if I would have known about this book back in 1991, I just would have referred that, my critics to the book, okay? <laughs> right, right. Um, what if, what if you had, I mean, I know now this is, it may sound silly, but, you know, going back in time and getting a chance to, to work with Garrison, I mean, knowing what you know now, how would that case have turned out differently? Oh, well, the prosecution of Clay Shaw, in retrospect, was kind of a lost cause simply because in my other book, Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, okay, don't get the first edition, get the second edition, I revealed just how determined the CIA 
was to derail that prosecution. And I detailed it from the creation of the Garrison Group in 1967 all the way through 68 and then during the trial. They even were harassing his witnesses during the trial process. You know, if it would have been me, I would advise him not to do it because it was such a hopeless endeavor. Okay, today, of course, if you saw the film, Mm -hmm. we know that Clay Shaw lied his head off, okay, about not being associated with the CIA. You know, Clay Shaw had three clearances with the CIA, you know. Uh, He did a lot of work for them going all the way back to the early 50s, you know. And on top of that, he lied. If you read my book, you know, he lied about several other issues, okay, about not knowing David Ferry, about not knowing Lee Harvey Oswald, about not being up in Clinton Jackson, you know. And there was such a coordinated attack on Garrison's prosecution that, you know, it was kind of a, a kind of a hopeless case. You know, I, I, it's very unfortunate because I think today it's pretty clear that Shaw did have a role in all this. All right, and it went way beyond what Oliver put in his um, put in his film. Okay. Um, I can go into that, for example, the whole thing about Clinton Jackson, the Clinton Jackson incident, 125 miles north, uh, northwest of New Orleans, where Oswald is seen with Clay Shaw and David Ferry. There's also the whole leafleting thing in front of the International Trademark, in which his assistant and himself knew that Oswald had made a terrible mistake a week before on Canal Street by printing Guy Bannister's office number, okay, on one of those pamphlets he was handing out, okay, because his assistant, Jesse Corr, sent it, he picked one up, sent it to the FBI and arrowed and folded over, you know, directions, see the next to last page. So here's my question. How could he have known about that if he didn't know who Guy Bannister was? All right. So, yes, I think, in my opinion, uh, with what we know today, it'd be a much stronger case. Back then, I think it was kind of hopeless. You know, it was kind of a heroic act by Garrison, but he was simply not going to win. I do want to get into CE399 because, you know, without that magic bullet, I mean, that's really what so much of the Warren Commission case rests on. Without the magic bullet, without a single bullet, you know, all of those, what were there, seven non-fatal wounds sustained by both men, you know, how else can they be explained except for a second shooter? And the film, you spent a lot of time on CE399. But before we get to that, because we're coming up on a break, I just want to ask you something that's always, I've always wondered about. In the movie JFK, they go into the morgue and they take Oswald's dead hand and they put it on the rifle, the Menlicher Carcano rifle, to get the handprint on the weapon. Do you think it actually happened that way? Well, it was pretty close, because the guy who was running that mortuary, they interviewed him on the men who killed Kennedy, and he said the FBI did come in. They wouldn't let him into the room 
when they were there. But he did notice that when they left, there was ink all over Oswald's dead hand. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Pretty Amazing. bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One more thing, and that is the parade route. There's been kind of conflicting theories on this as to whether they did, in fact, change the parade route last minute in order for this triangulation for for uh, the motorcade to be you know driven into this death trap, as it were. Was the parade route changed at the last minute, yes or no? According to the Dallas police, it was. The night before, they had to bring in the motorcycle escorts and told them, we have to go by the new parade route. And they went ahead and they followed the new parade route just to make sure what they were doing. But beyond that, they even stripped back the number of motorcycle escorts. It was cut by about one-third. And one of the guys said at the after, he goes, you know, that was the craziest motorcycle escort I've ever seen in my life. Because if you look at the films, Kennedy's wide open from the side. Okay, and of course, everybody's seen the film where they call off the guy who's supposed to be riding on the back bumper. Right. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, yes. At Love Field, they called the guy off. I think his name was Lawton. And you can see him looking, what are we doing? And that's perhaps why Fletcher Prouty was flown off in that wild goose chase to uh, the Antarctic, because that would have been his job, right? To make sure there was sufficient security around Kennedy in Dallas. Well, he was what they call the procurer. He was supposed to go ahead, and uh, if there were any complaints or anything like that, he was a guy who was supposed to contact someone, that kind of a thing. All right, He wasn't really involved with the actual Secret Service. Um, that was a bit of dramatic license, all right? But that whole thing about him going to the South Pole, is so uh, it's so mind-boggling, okay? I mean, why that was done at that precise moment, you know, uh, that's, that's absolutely accurate. Lansdale sent him to the South Pole, okay? On, on, and he still couldn't figure to, he never could figure out why Lansdale did that because Lansdale wasn't even his commanding officer. Victor Krulak was. All right. We'll take a quick timeout, Jim, and uh, continue to commemorate the 58th anniversary of the murder of the 35th president, JFK, Jim D. Eugenio. All right. Back with more of our conversation in a mere moments. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Jim DiEugenio is with us, and we're talking about the uh, the latest Oliver Stone film. Well, it's Jim's film, too. JFK revisited through the looking glass. So let's, uh, before we talk about CE399, this is the magic bullet, let's talk about the magic bullet theory, the brainchild of the Warren Commission lawyer, Arlen Specter, who would later become the senior senator from Pennsylvania. Now, what did he come up with that on his own? Did he get help? Do we know the actual who actually pieced together the magic bullet theory? Well, Specter did it in its final form. There were people on the commission who were actually talking about it. Okay, see, because the commission was stuck with a three bullet scenario. Okay, all right. 
and that was it. Because if they declared more than that, there would have then it obviously would have had to be a conspiracy because there were three shells found at the scene. Okay, and they weren't going to go any further than that. All right, and so they were stuck with this. And so early on, I think Bellin and Ball, two of the uh, junior lawyers, said something like, "You know, something. Um, we might have to." Uh, somehow come up with one bullet going through both men. But it was really Spectre who then completed that idea in April, okay, of 1964. And there was two reasons they did this. One was the tag hit. Should I explain that? Yes. The, okay. The tag hit was, according to the Warren Commission, Oswald fired a shot that completely missed the car. And (laughs) not only did it miss the car, it went on to a different street, Commerce Street, okay, which is next to Elm, all right? And it ricocheted off the curb, and it wounded James Tag in the face, all right? Okay, so that's one shot. So you're down to two shots. And you have to explain, you know, all the wounds in Kennedy and Conley plus the fatal headshot. Right, seven non-fatal wounds plus the headshot. Right, with two bullets. (laughs) Right, so you're down to two bullets. And the other thing is there was a timing problem, okay? The timing between uh, the, uh, I think it's the first and second shots, was too close, okay, because the FBI tested a rifle and said it was 2.3 seconds, okay? But yet, according to the analysis by the Warren Commission, the guys watching the film, the Z film, the Zabruder film, the timing was too close. It was like 1.6 seconds. So for those right, two Right, this is a bolt-action rifle. Yeah, you can't, do, you can't get that off in a, with a bolt-action rifle that quickly. Well, yeah, exactly, all right? And and so for those two reasons, Spectre had to come up with a way, you know, for one of these bullets to do double duty. And that is where the so-called single bullet theory, or whatever you want to call it, I call it the single bullet fantasy, you know, some people call it the magic bullet, okay, whatever it is, that's how it was created. It was a child of necessity. And that great speech from JFK with Kevin Costner playing Jim Garrison, the magic bullet speech, did it actually, right. did Garrison deliver it just like that? Or again, is there some poetic license there taken by Stone in the movie? No, I, I actually, I don't think it was Garrison who introduced that, okay? I think it was Oser, Alvin Oser, okay, who talked about, he did the medical evidence and the ballistic evidence at the Clay Shaw trial, okay? Um, the guy who, by the way, the guy who suggested that to Oliver to put it in the film like that, what is in our movie, Cyril Wecht. Right. You know, right. Who, I, who plays a really strong part in the film. All right. And, um, and he's the one who suggested to Oliver. Well, let me ask you this. How could a bullet do all that and miss only 2.4 grains of its mass? Not grams, 2.4 grains. You know? Of its mass. And we have Joseph Dolce, Dr. Joseph Dolce, 
in the film talking about this. And he was a battlefield uh, surgeon during World War II. And he says, under no circumstances do I believe that this bullet could have done what they said it did and emerged this intact. All right? Now, I don't know if you know this. That guy worked for the Warren Commission. Let me say this again. Joseph Dolce worked for the Warren Commission. He says right in our movie that under no circumstances do I think this bullet could have done this kind of damage and emerge in the condition it's in. Now, here's my question. Try and find Joseph Dolce in the Warren Report. Try and find Joseph Dolce in the Warren Commission volumes. You won't. You won't find him. Because Arlen Specter made sure that he wasn't in there. Okay. <laughs> Even though yep. he was his own expert. How convenient. How convenient. Yeah. Uh, so again, yeah, the after after going through Kennedy and Connolly uh, and causing seven wounds and, and and tearing through flesh and bone, the bullet presumably in pristine condition we're told, falls out of Connolly's clothes onto a stretcher at Parkland uh, Hospital uh, where it's found by um, uh, an orderly. Uh, but but is there any evidence actually that, that Governor Connolly was on that stretcher in the hospital where the bullet was found? Now, well, now that's a very good question, which I actually wish we would have put in the movie. Because as Tink Thompson proved in his book, Six Seconds in Dallas, and Don Thomas proved again in his book, Hear No Evil, that bullet, CE-399, was not found on Conley's stretcher. It was found on a little kid, I think he was 11 years old, named Ronnie Fuller. It was found on his stretcher. Okay? Now, if you look at the way that Arlen Specter examined Daryl Tomlinson, okay, you'll see that Specter knew this. He knew that he had a very serious problem. And the way he questioned Tomlinson would never be allowed in a court of law because he was trying to lead him to Conley Stretcher. Okay? Now, here's here, but here, but it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. And this is another thing we didn't, we didn't put in the film. In 1993, a researcher named Wallace Milam talked to O.P. Wright's widow. O.P. Wright the personnel is director. the second guy who handled C-399. Right. Okay. And he had passed on, but she was the head of nursing. Okay. And she told Wallace Milam, that, you know, that wasn't the only bullet we found that day. <laughs> there were other bullets that were showing up. Okay? Now, <laughs> when I heard that, I said, so in other words, they were covering themselves. There, there was going to be a bullet found at Parkland Hospital come hell or right. high water. It's like an All Easter right? egg hunt. <laughs> And did they ever match CE-399 to uh, the rifle, Oswald's rifle? Well, according to the Warren Commission, they did. 
There's a little bit of disagreement about that with the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Okay, they kind of dis- they slightly disagreed with that. Okay, but the point we were trying to make with CE three nine nine is we wanted to avoid all that stuff about bullet trajectories and stuff like that. And we just wanted to prove, and I think we did, that CE399 would never be admitted into a court of law today, all right, simply because there is no chain of custody to that bullet. And we spent a lot of time on this. Like you said, we proved with Gary Aguilar, okay, with Deborah Conway, with David Mantic and the late John Hunt, okay, that Number one, the FBI lied about the identification of that bullet. The guy that they said they sent around for the identification, Bardwell Odom, told Gary Aguilar and Tink Thompson, I did no such thing. I never showed that bullet to anybody. And if I would have done so, I would have remembered because I was friends with O.P. Wright. Okay? So, in other words, Hoover just lied about that. Okay? Secondly... The FBI also lied about Elmer Lee Todd's initials being on that bullet, okay? Elmer Lee Todd was the last guy who got the bullet from James Rowley, the head of the Secret Service, at the White House, all right? And Hoover said that Elmer Lee Todd's initials are on the bullet. Elmer Lee Todd's initials are not on the bullet. And we have this from both John Hunt, who saw the pictures, and also from David Mantic, who actually had that bullet in his hand before they started passing out the pictures. But here is the clincher. The clincher is that that bullet was not given to Elmer Lee Todd till about 8.40 or 8.50 that night. And there's a receipt for it. So that's how we know that. But yet in Frazier's paperwork, he says he got the stretcher bullet at 7.30. Now think about that for a while. How on earth could he get the stretcher bullet at 7.30 if Elmer Lee Todd had not given it to him yet? So in other words, what that says is there's either an extra bullet or somebody switched to bullets. Either way, you have a conspiracy. All right. All right, and so right. this is what we tried to show, that we shouldn't be talking about trajectories or anything like that anymore. The question that I wanted to pose is who planted CE399? Okay? All right, That's Jim, what I take want the audience out. to walk we'll, uh, away of. Who planted right. that bullet? Exactly. All right, Jim, we'll take a, a quick time out. Jim DiEugenio stays with us. JFK revisited through the looking glass. Back with more in a moment. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we will take questions and comments after the top of the hour with Jim DiEugenio as we continue to discuss JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. That is um, the latest from uh, Oliver Stone. And... um, Jim DiEugenio wrote the scripts and uh, heavily, heavily involved, obviously, with this film. Now, the rush to get Kennedy's body out of Dallas and to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital 
I mean, that's breaking all protocols, I would imagine, right? You've got a you've got a dead body, you've got a crime scene, you have an active investigation. I mean, was that allowed? I mean, can you take can the Secret Service No, actually actually what the Secret Service did there was against the law. Earl right. Rose, who was the uh, medical examiner in Dallas Fort Worth, his office was right at Parkland Hospital. Okay, on the first floor. All right, and he wanted to do the autopsy there. All right, but there was a long, drawn out argument that ended with in a violent kind of way, and he ended up being literally shoved aside. All right, and they got on Air Force One, and they went to Bethesda Medical Center. And which is a Navy hospital. And they got, instead of Earl Rose, who was a pretty good medical examiner, they got these guys who were not even really practicing forensic pathologists. Humes and Boswell had not done a gunshot autopsy in a heck of a long time, years on end. All right, so they called in Pierre Fink, all right, and he was, I think, from the Army or the Air Force. And then they wanted to get somebody from outside. But that permission was denied. And so they ended up with what is probably one of the worst autopsies in the history of medical evidence. Okay. And we, we do, this is the other thing that we spent a lot of time on, okay, because because of this autopsy, because it was so heavily controlled, okay, by outside forces who should never even have been there, really, all right, this is why nobody really knows the actual circumstances of how President Kennedy was killed. Because when somebody dies of a gunshot wound and it's a homicide, all right, you're supposed to dissect the wounds. Both in in Kennedy, there were allegedly two wounds, one from his back and the other one in his head. Okay, well, the doctors there that night were stopped from dissecting the back wound. All right, and as we spent a lot of time on in the film. There's a very big controversy about whether or not there was a sectioning of Kennedy's brain. Let me explain what that means. In a gunshot wound autopsy where there's a bullet wound to the head, you're supposed to let the brain soak, okay, because you don't want to do it in a fresh state because it has no consistency, all right? And so you let it firm up. Okay, and then you either do what's called a cereal section, which is like cutting a bread loaf, or you do what is called a pie section, and you section off the brain that way. And this way, you can go ahead and determine what path the bullet or bullets went through in Kennedy's brain. Well, as I said, there was no back wound dissection. And there's a very big controversy about whether or not 
Kennedy's brain was ever cut so that we could see the way the bullets went. The official records say that this never happened. But as uh, Doug Horn talks about in the film, and even more in the longer version, the four-hour version that's coming out in February, okay, there might have been one of these, but they ditched the evidence, okay? You know, they deliberately deep-sixed the evidence that that ever happened. They never wanted it to get out. And I'm sure you're aware, Richard, that anybody who sees the film, our other big pillar of evidence to show that there was fraud in the record is that the brain in evidence cannot possibly be President Kennedy's. And it took us this long to figure that out, which is a real shame. Well, we'll, uh, we'll pick up on that point on the other side, uh, Jim. This was a short segment. When we come back, we'll talk about the president's brain. Jim DiEugenio uh, wrote the, uh, the script for JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, Oliver Stone's latest 30 years after the drama JFK. Uh, he's doubling down once again. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we're back with Jim DiEugenio. He stays with us for the full two hours. All right, so we're talking about Kennedy's brain, and you're saying that, uh, uh, well, we saw photographs of the uh, of the brain, but that wasn't his brain, right? Well, the illustration by Ida Docks, the medical illustrator for the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations, depicts what is in essence pretty much an intact brain. I mean, it's disrupted, but it's pretty much an intact brain. But further, when it was weighed, it came in at 1,500 grams. As we discuss in the film, all right, and this was a major point we tried to put across, 1,500 grams is above the norm. The norm is about 1380, okay? So here you have a brain that's actually above the usual weight. How could that be? Right. We saw I his mean, head virtually explode. I mean, there was gray matter on the back of that limousine. If you I'm watch sorry to get the graphic, Bruder film, yeah. Kennedy's head explodes, okay, yeah. in, in this uh, halo of, of red and flesh, okay, and liquid into the air. There's the motorcycle cops on the left side of Kennedy got brain and tissue embedded in their face, okay? If you've seen, and we show the film, all the blood and, and liquid in the back seat of the car, okay? Not the jump seat where Conley was. Okay, but the back seat of the car. All right? You Jackie Kennedy goes reaching out to the hood of the car because part of JFK's brain, you know, was on the hood of the car. Right. All right? So, how in God's name can Kennedy's brain weigh more than what the what it should? I'm sorry. I just don't buy it. Now, in addition to that, in addition to that, 
In my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, I listed 12 witnesses, 12 eyewitnesses, who said that Kennedy's brain was not an intact brain, that it was severely wounded and damaged. Okay, part of it was missing. All right? So, in my opinion, and, even, and by the way, I'm so glad we got Mike Chesser. Dr. Chesser is actually a neurologist. Yeah. Okay? And he says this, this cannot possibly be President Kennedy's brain. Now, why would they do something like that? Well, because and it, I, would I think hide, it would hide. Says, yeah, it would hide evidence that he was shot from the front. Right. Obviously. Exactly. Exactly. To, it would prevent the discovery of two shots to the head, which is what m- many people believe is the actual way that Kennedy was killed. All right? You know, and then what, I was so proud that we had um, John Stringer. John Stringer is the official photographer. Douglas Horn, one of our interview subjects, was in the room when he was examined by the ARB the Assassination Records Review Board. They showed him pictures, the extant pictures, of Kennedy's brain. And he walked up to the pictures, and he says, this is, I think this is ANSCO film. I didn't use ANSCO. I used Kodak. And he says, you see see these numbers here down in the right-hand corner? This means that these pictures were taken with a film pack. I did not take pictures with a film pack. And then Jeremy Gunn, the chief counsel, said, you said you saw a highly damaged cerebellum, which is in the lower part of the brain in the back. Is that what you see here? And he goes, no. That's an intact cerebellum. And so Jeremy Gunn asked him, are you ready to say that you didn't take these pictures? And he says, as far as I know, I didn't take these pictures. So here, so you know how important that is, Richard? Because in a court of law, if you're going to try and admit a picture, an illustration, or a drawing as evidence, the person who made that picture, illustration, or drawing has to say that that's the picture that he took. So in other words, these photographs would never be admitted into a court of law today. And that's another illustration of the fraud in this case. Right, right. And then the brain supposedly goes to the National Archives, but it disappears from the pages of history. <laughs> now, right, was, that exactly. Cyril Wecht, All right. was that Cyril when Wecht who actually Cyril discovered? Cyril Wecht went into yeah. the National Archives in 1972. He was the first forensic pathologist that was allowed to go in. All right. And he looked at the inventory, and he said, there's supposed to be a brain here. There is no brain here. Kennedy's brain is missing. All right? You know? So, in other words, here you have these false representations of John F. Kennedy's brain, when, in fact, the real brain of John F. Kennedy disappeared God knows how long ago. You know, so in other words, here, and here's a question. Why do, they, why do they need these fraudulent pictures, and who took them? 
And we, as you saw, you saw the film, we tried to make a case for Robert Knudsen might have taken them. Okay, do you want to get into that now, or do you want to wait to yeah, take a uh, break? We've, we've got about three minutes here. Yeah, why did you, just walk us through how you arrived at Knudsen. See, Robert Knudsen was called, okay, by, I think, George Berkeley to uh, report to follow Kennedy's body once it arrived in Washington. He was gone for three days. His family didn't see him. He was the White House photographer. He was one of the official White House photographers. He actually delivered pictures to Sandra Spencer, who's another important witness that we feature in the film. Okay? He said he took pictures, okay, of, of the autopsy. But his pictures are gone, okay? And he did not recognize some of the pictures of the autopsy that are in evidence today. He recalled a big hole in the back of Kennedy's head, okay? You know? And so we suspect that they both took pictures, okay? Both Stringer and Knudsen. And if there's somebody who who actually did take pictures of, the, of, the, of Kennedy's real brain, it was probably Newton, and those pictures disappeared. All right? And let me add just one last thing. If you listen to Robert Newton's, um deposition, which is on tape at the National Archives, you want, you want to hear something really weird? Yes. It's not his voice. It's what? a woman's voice. On the National Archives. It's not Knudsen talking. Now, is that the weirdest thing you ever heard in your life? Why on earth would they they not let the guy speak in his own voice? Right, right. That is bizarre. That is very strange. (laughs) Jim DiEugenio is uh, with us. He wrote the screenplay for JFK Revisited. Again, that's uh, premiering across Canada. Tomorrow night, the 58th, uh, 58th anniversary of JFK's assassination, and you can see it on Showtime on Crave TV. Um, and it aired earlier this month in the U.S., I believe, correct? Was it the November 12th? It, it, it's, it's on demand, okay, right. in the U.S. It was available as of it right. was available as premiering tomorrow in the United States on Showtime oh. also. Ah, okay. Um. And when did you say again the three hour uh, the th- part two the three hours is coming out? The four hour version. The four, four hour, hour version is coming out in February. Okay, and that will be on demand. Also, you can either rent it or you can buy it. And there will be a book also, a book of the film. That's coming out too. We've got about a minute here before we break. When you when you watch this, by the way, let me tell you why we have to do the book of the film. All right. Like I said earlier, we had so many good interviews that we just, to be perfectly honest, this could have gone six hours, and it would have been probably just as good as a two-hour version that we have. That strong, we couldn't get anybody to bite on the six-hour one. So. Oliver and Rob Wilson, the producers, said, Jim, why don't you make a book of the film? And the stuff that we couldn't put in the movie, put in the book. Now, where do you see some of the interviews that we did? 
that that we could not put in the film. I mean, it's it's, it's just sensational stuff. Can't okay, wait, Jim. Got to take a time out. Top of the hour. Uh, we will open up the phone lines and take questions and comments for James D. Eugenio, one of the world's foremost JFK assassination researchers. He wrote the screenplay for Oliver Stone's latest doc, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, back with more of our conversation right after these.